Well, good morning. Good to see everyone. We are going to need all the time that we have together. So why don't we take out our Bibles and grab the handout sheet that was given to us at the front door. I want to just start with a couple thoughts. We are in part two of our Identity in Crisis series through the book of Judges. And we're going to be in Judges chapter 2, verse 6, if you need to get there. And I just entitled today's message, If God Had Not Been on Our Side. And I want to just share uh, an identity statement to kick us off. God's wrath is not for God's kids. God's discipline is for God's children. And there's a huge difference between wrath and discipline. When we read the Bible sometimes, especially the Old Testament, we'll, we'll go through and we'll see God give this full vent of just destruction coming out. And we're like, man, he's scary. I hope that's not for me. I hope he's not going to do that to me if I step out of line. And God's wrath is for God's enemies, not for his kids. If you are his child and you say, well, what do you mean by that? If you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says that we are adopted into the family of God and that we are his children. God's wrath is never for God's kids. God's discipline is. And you say, well, what's the difference there? Let's take a look at the fill in the blank right there in front of you. Even God's corrections are to bless us. Even God's corrections are to bless us. I want to tell you what appropriate discipline looks like and what it doesn't. You have two choices sometimes when you discipline. You can discipline out of anger or you can discipline out of agape. Our Father in heaven disciplines always out of agape. Agape is a Greek word that means other focus love. Others focused love. It means that whatever you're doing, the way that you're loving them, you're loving them in a manner that they need and you're going to do it for their best interest. In the same way, even when God disciplines, he does it to make us better. He does it always for the purpose of restoration. Wrath is for destruction. Wrath is for simply punishment alone. Wrath is not to bring it back alive, but discipline is. For some of us, when we talk about a father's discipline, some of us immediately kind of squirrel out in our minds. Some of us immediately go, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. And we try to think of something else because the fathers we had in our lives here on earth were not good. They were harmful, they were abusive, they were neglecting, whatever. So when I say, or anyone says, or when we do even the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Some of us are still going la 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 with our fingers in our ears. Why? Because we can't think of God attached to our dads. Now, I don't know how many of you have been following the Facebook stuff that I've been posting, the devotions in the morning, but I recently did one with Pastor Parnell Lovelace. We had something in common. We both came from broken homes, but we both had a good relationship with our dads. Our dads were not there in the home when we grew up. We had to learn how to be a dad from Scripture. We didn't have any role models. We didn't have anybody tell us how to do it. We didn't have anybody show us. But we had good relationships with our dads. 
As a matter of fact, our dads were our champions. Our dads loved us. Our dads poured into us. So when we think of dad, we still have a very positive view. Not all of you have that. And when you don't have that, you need to take what we had to do, which was realize that God is not merely just a little bit better version of earthly dads. He's altogether different. He's healthy and whole. He is strong and He is good. He is wise and He is gentle. And He is so deeply loving. That you now have to project out and say, whoa, 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 it doesn't matter what my role models on earth were. My God is different than that. And allow Him to pour into your life what it is to be a healthy father. You see, some of us discipline out of anger and that's not okay some of us vent our wrath upon our children and i'm here to tell you as your pastor that's not okay every discipline you're a parent every discipline you do for your child should be for their best interest if you got to clear it out and you got to vent it out with another adult and you got to sort and clear your heart and kind of get that pressure valve released a little bit all right all right that's just human But we don't punish our children. We don't discipline our children to make ourselves feel better. We discipline our children so they are better. And that's the way that God operates with us. Even His discipline, even His correction is to bless us. Everything He does is for a restoration so that even through all of that, we come out stronger and more powerful. I think that's awesome. So... I just want to share the last couple of things as we dive into this to set the tone. If you haven't been to Judges chapter 2, please turn to there. But let me just give you two thoughts. Number one, there is some correlation and application. There's stuff we can learn when we read about Israel in the Old Testament. God works with Israel in the Old Testament in a similar way to how he works with the church today. That's how we make these connections. And I'm going to be making connections all the way throughout the message. But let me be clear about a caveat. Not everything is the same. There's stuff he does with Israel that is uniquely Israel. Some people say, oh, well, the church has replaced Israel. I disagree. I think God has two different roles happening. I think he uses the church for one role. I think he uses the nation of Israel for another role. I think he is still working with national Israel. I think they're still his chosen people. I think we got grafted into the family, but I think he's got a whole different plan on how he's using the Gentile church. I think they're two two different things. And in one area, we need to be very clear that is different is that God used them for a very niche purpose he wanted to create a world drama dropped him in the middle east put him in the center of everything and said guys i want to tell the world what i'm thinking about and what i want therefore in order to create that drama on a stage for the world i need you to do some really weird things they do not translate over to us there are some really bizarre things he'll give this mandate don't you dare mix with other nations well is that something we apply to the church today no absolutely not as a matter of fact what jesus christ called us to do was there is 
Neither male nor female, slave nor free, barbarian nor Scythian, right? I mean, we have this whole idea that we are one family. So yes, we are intermixed all over the place. So why is it different for them than it is for us? Because their very special call was to design out a people group in a location walled off so God could be clear. So therefore, they had weird dietary laws, they had weird regulations and rules, they had weird commandment things. And We just need to realize there's some stuff that applies and some stuff that doesn't apply to us. The last thing I want to share before we dive into it, as I've been sharing over the last two weeks, this idea that there's 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, we kind of spent a little bit of time on that. Whenever I say, oh, you know, the tribe of Judah, it did this. And, you know, the tribe of Benjamin, it did this. We're going to be talking about that through the book of Judges. Whenever I say that material, I have a picture in my head. I've seen the map a million times, but maybe you haven't. Could we throw up that map on the screen there? I want you to picture what I picture. And that is they had territory when Moses led them out of Egypt. He took them up to the edge of a place called Canaan. That would be their promised land. Joshua took over and led a campaign. But before he did that, God drew him a map and said, these are your areas. Now go take it. So when I said last week, Judah and Simeon went out, those two tribes together went and did warfare. You can see on the map why. Because Judah has a big old territory and Simeon's is right in the middle of it. So why not partner together to get it done? So I'm always assuming you have this picture in your mind like I have, and maybe you don't, but now you do. All right, we can go ahead and pull that off the screen. Let's move forward. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. Let's dive into this. I think that there will be a powerful message for you today. When Joshua dismissed the people, it says, meaning when he was later in life ready to pass away, he did a farewell speech telling them to stay true to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. All right, let me underscore the point. There's a difference between inheritance and possession. Inheritance and possession. They had on the map their name, but the people living there are not cool with them moving in. Y'all understand what I'm saying? In the same way, today we apply it to the church. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, it says he defeated death and hell. It says that he snapped the enemy's neck. He said that now the gates of hell will not prevail. He now put our name in freedom, in inheritance, all over the map. But that doesn't mean the enemy's cool with walking out. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Because we say this, if Jesus did all this work for us, why is it so hard? Why is everything so difficult? Because just because your name is on it doesn't mean the enemy wants to give it back to you. Yeah, the, uh, Jesus Christ bought it for us. We now got to root out the problem. Give, let me give you an example. Jesus gave us victory over addiction, right? And then why are we all struggling with addiction? Because we have in a pattern mapped our minds that we constantly do the same thing over and over and over just because jesus said we can be free doesn't mean we don't have to learn how to unmap it 
doesn't mean that everything in our body is going to go, hold on, hold on. We're addicts. You go, oh, I thought Jesus set you free. Oh, he did. The problem is our habits, right? The problem is our learned behavior. We still got to do the hard work of rooting that stuff out. And our body's not going to be cool with it. All these alarms are going to go off. I'm craving this. I'm craving this. I need this. I don't like this, right? That's why it's so tense. It's not because Jesus didn't give us victory. It's because we have to do hard work. We always assume that if it's hard work, God must not be in it. That's not true. God gave the inheritance. They needed to go take the land. Make sense? All right, let's move on to the second verse. Verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, kind of like Caleb, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Protection, provision, stuff like that. Miracles. Verse 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance. Go to verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. All right. As the king, so goes the nation. You know that, right? Maybe you've heard it this way. Everything rises and falls on leadership. One of the reasons why there has been so much tension during this political season is we know that our leadership affects our everyday lives, right? I mean, you all know that. That's not new. If you have great leadership, things are going to go well for the people. If you got dismal leadership... Things are going to be really difficult for the people. So we all get heartburn trying to figure out how do we get good leadership to lead us well. We either need great representatives or we need a good leader that's going to do stuff we don't even want to do. Right? But we we desperately need great leadership. So we have all this angst every time we go into political seasons. Well, I'm here to tell you that in Israel, Joshua and his team were extraordinary leaders. They were godly men and women. They were people that believed God at his word. They had strong faith they had confidence that god could do great things they were humble men and women they were people that wanted to serve all the people that were under them they were great leadership and as long as they were around and running the show everybody was flourishing look at the next line and there arose another generation after them who did not know the lord or the work that he had done for israel oops Why? I'll tell you at least two reasons. Number one, complete failure of succession plan. Complete failure to pass the baton. Where were all the young leaders that Joshua and his team were raising up? They were so focused on being awesome. And they were. That they didn't leave anything behind when they were gone. Are we thinking about that? Are we thinking about raising up the next generation? Are we passing it on in leadership to be able to say the young people of the church are going to be constantly leading the church into the future? Are we investing in them? Are we taking time with them? Are we making sure they know not only what we did, but how we did it? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Because they didn't do that. And somehow we went from awesome leadership to no leadership. That's never going to go well. I'll tell you the second reason why. Second reason why. Poor parenting. There you go. 
Let me ask you this. Do you really believe that the spiritual lives of your children is supposed to be, be handled by our educational system? Do you think that it should be handled by the church? If you do, you're wrong. The responsibility of the spiritual lives of our children is on our doorstep. We are the parent. Everything else is supplemental. Everything else is an add-on. Am I thankful for it? Yes. My two daughters are thriving in the Lord today, and a lot of it was blessed because of our Kids Way program that they grew up in, because of our Edge Middle School ministry, because of our Fuel High School ministry. My children got extra boost But ultimately, it has to be around the dinner table. It has to be some type of communication. Where in the world were the parents telling this new generation after Joshua about the miracles? No one's talking anymore. And you go, well, I'm not a pastor. I don't know all the answers. Nobody said you had to have any of that. Just give them a role model that you love the Lord a lot. Because that gets them fired up. I didn't duplicate what my mom did growing up, but I sure felt the power of knowing that my mom knew that she could go to the word. I knew my mom believed in the power of prayer. I knew that everywhere I went in my house growing up, there were little three by five cards in every cabinet that had scriptures written all about it. I'm just trying to get salt and I got to read Psalm 39. Now, I don't do that. I don't have that at my house. But I took the heart of her role modeling to my heart. You don't have to have all the right ways to do it. You don't have to have all the brilliant answers. You don't have to sit around and go, children, we are now doing the reading of the Lord. Everyone stand, please. I mean, we don't need it. You don't need that accent. Right? Although it is more powerful. (laughs) You just need to be in love with Jesus and live out loud. They need to know that when you have a hard time, like they're going to have a hard time. When you have a real life, like they're going to have a real life. They need to know, what did you do with it? Did you take it to the Lord or not? And you go, well, I'm really not all that into Jesus myself. And there's the problem, right? How are they supposed to, you cannot impart what you do not possess. How are they supposed to learn? So somehow, some way, this generation stopped talking about God. Look at the next line. And the people of Israel did what was evil on the side of the Lord. We're simply not going to pass it on well if we don't focus. They, what do you mean? Verse 13. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. The only thing you need to know about that is when they walked into this land of Canaan, everyone's called a Canaanite. They live in Canaan. Now, they all have little people groups and they all have their own little names, but generally they're called Canaanites. The Canaanite people group in that region were all into fertility gods and goddesses. That was their big thing. Man, Baal is the male guy and Asherah Asherah is the female. And they're, you know, in mythology, they're married. And he's the god of thunder and lightning. And he rides on the clouds and the chariot. and, And she's the one that can raise things to life and breathe blessing and abundance. And so they thought if they would sacrifice to them and give to them and invest their time and energy, they would get a whole bunch more stuff and they would feel great about their lives and they'd be more powerful than their enemies. And this is where we sit back as modern-day Americans enlightened and we scoff at them. Oh, what stupid people. 
How could you believe in that foolishness? Right? How, how could you have a little idol you bought at Sears? And then you put it on your mantle and it says Baal or Asherah and then you bow down to it. Oh, we are so enlightened. How could you be so dumb? And then we realize we're doing the exact same thing. Why? Our little idols on our mantle just have different names. We don't have Baal and Asherah. We have a big dollar sign on it. We have one called materialism. We got one called individualism. We got all these little retirement portfolio, workaholism. We got them all the way across our mantle and we will give them all our time and our energy. We'll give them all of our heart thinking they're going to make us better and more powerful. It's the same idolatry, just different names. So I don't think we should be so quick to judge them when we're doing the same thing, right? They abandoned the Lord. They walked away from the Lord and they served other stuff. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He's about to bring in discipline. So he gave them over to plunderers. Well, that doesn't sound good. Who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. He took them away from their protection umbrella. Whenever, verse 15, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them. That's his own kids was against them for what harm. Ouch. Just like the Lord had warned them in advance. And as the Lord had sworn to them in the covenant contract and they were in terrible distress. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if God's your problem. Now who you pray to right before you're like, Oh, the enemy persecution. He's like, no, it's me. Oh, well, who am I supposed to talk to? Can I speak to your supervisor? Right? What if God's your problem? What if he is trying to re-rack you? What if he is trying to say, you know what? This isn't working. Kids, I can't even use you right now. Your head is so big, I can't even fit it through the doorway. I would love to do ministry with you, but you are so arrogant and so self-focused. We need a re-racking, kids. Now, I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question here. I don't want you to raise your hand because it's going to embarrass the person next to you. So rhetorically, how many of you have ever known somebody that was a Christian and they were kind of smug and self-righteous and they were really legalistic and judgmental and they thought they were all that. And then at one point in their life, they walked away from the Lord, got crushed by the world and they came back nicer than they were before. Once again, please don't raise your hand. It's probably your spouse. Okay, I've seen that time and time and time again. They were a super mean Christian. God's like, I don't even know what to do with you. I can't even use you, man. And then all of a sudden, you've been pushing on the gate, pushing on the gate, pushing on the gate, wanting to get out. Grass is greener, grass is greener. He opens up the door. You go out, get eaten by wolves, run back in. I don't want to go out there. He's like, I know. And suddenly you're nicer. And now all the rest of us are like, oh, no, I like you. I really hated you before, right? Okay, sometimes God has to re-rack. Sometimes he has to crush and mold down and go, I want to work with you. Do you understand that he's even doing that for your blessing? He's even doing that for your benefit. He's doing this meltdown process so you're more pure gold. I think that's awesome. That's how loving our God is. He says this, then the Lord, because they're in terrible distress, The Lord raised up judges. Whenever you hear that phrase, I want you to think savior, rescuer, helper, 
military, government, but don't think judicial. This isn't a gavel guy. Don't, 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 right? Order in the court. It's none of that. There's only a few of them that ever operated in any judicial fashion. Mostly think tough guy or tough lady who gets them out of a jam. I want you to think more like that. So God raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Pause. Wait, wait, wait. Who put them in the hands of the plunderers? God. Who's getting them out of the hand of the plunderers? God. That seems strange. It's almost like God's in charge. Right? Whatever's best for his kids, that he's going to do. Why did he save them? We find out in verse 18, it's because he was moved to compassion and pity. Do you know how tense it must be for God to not want to always spend all his time in correction? Don't you think he just wants to bless us because that's his heart? You know what I'm saying? Wouldn't it be nice for him to just go on a trip with us without having to turn the car around? (laughs) Why are we turning the car around? Oh, that's right. You're screwing around the back seat, punching your sister. Okay, stop doing that and we can keep going forward. You all know what I'm talking about? It's that God has this tension of going, I want to bless you. I want to bless you. I want to bless you. But wow, you keep making me have to pull over so we can re-rack. I don't want to re-rack. I just want to do adventure. I just want to have fun. I just want to have you thrive. I just want you to be obedient so we can live to the max potential that I built you for. But wow, sometimes we just got to slow it down. So he has this compassion all this time, this beautiful grace and leadership. So many people say, oh, the, the, the God of the Old Testament, that's a mean, nasty, legalistic guy that he's the big guy upstairs that just wants to smash you with a hammer. And, and Jesus is nice in the New Testament. Okay. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you think that there's a difference between the God of the Old Testament and new, you're not reading the Old Testament right. Because I got to tell you right now, when Moses said, hey, if I'm going to go to Pharaoh, I need to tell him who sent me. Who are you? What did God say? I'm super loving. I'm compassionate. I'm forgiving. Man, I'm into my kids. That was the God of the Old Testament. So if you're not seeing that, you're not reading it in context. There's a lot of context that we need to know. Yeah, but there was a lot of terrible things that he did. But why? There's a reason because God isn't different. God loved us then and he loves us now desperately. Now look at this. They're in trouble because they blew it. So he gives them judges to save them. Look at verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges. Of course. For they hoard, that is a fantastic word, they prostituted after other gods and bowed down to them in worship. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he did something about it. He said, because this people have transgressed and broken my contract, my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and because they have not obeyed my voice like we agreed, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. And that's a lot. Why? Verse 22. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Isn't it intriguing that any time we have a stronghold in our life or we have a lack of breakthrough, 
we immediately go, God must be weak. I don't think he's the problem. He's not too weak. He is strong and mighty to save. So if there's not breakthrough, there might be something bigger going on. Do you think? There might be something that he's trying to train through. There might be a bigger story that may have nothing to do with us going on. But I'll tell you this, if we knew what he knew, we'd praise him because he knows how to handle it, right? Hmm. How much is accountable on the church today? How much breakthrough could we have if we were willing to do the hard work? How much possession of the land would we be able to do that it has our name of inheritance written all over it? Are there people hurting around us as a church that shouldn't hurt because we should have fixed it by now? What if we're the deliverers that he raised up? You go, well, I could never do that. This message is for you. We'll keep going. Take a look at verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He said, let me tell you specifically how that went down. We're going to start talking about the judges. Here we go. Verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into, I'll paraphrase, he sold them into the hands of the king of Mesopotamia. And that guy ruled them for eight years. Eight years of correction. That sounds really long, huh? I mean, normally if God, you know, hands us over to our enemies for an afternoon, we think we've lost our salvation. Eight years to learn a lesson. Then notice what happens next. Verse nine. But when the people of Israel cried to the Lord... The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. He was a guy named Othniel. Do you remember him? He's the guy that took the city for Caleb and got his daughter in return. So he's Caleb's son-in-law. He takes it. The most important thing about it is verse 10. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. Let me paraphrase. Othniel went out to war and the Lord gave the king of Mesopotamia into his hand, verse 11. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel died. They had correction for eight. They had thriving for 40. That's a five times. What is the heart of God? He wants to move through the discipline period and let's get back to the thriving period, right? Sometimes we're not really learning our lessons. So he goes, all right, let's cycle it one more time. You know how you have clothes and you're like, they're not quite clean yet. So you got to put them through another cycle. That's kind of how he is with us. Hey, there's a stronghold here. We're not getting it out. All right, everybody, let's run it again, run it again. And here we go through the trial. Nope, didn't learn anything. All right, let's go ahead and run the cycle again. Nope, didn't learn anything. How about we run the cycle again? We can play this all our lives. God's really patient. And the people, it says, uh, so they had rest for 40 years, Othniel dies. So they must be on a good trajectory, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Bummer. I was reading my youngest daughter, Andy, the Action Bible when she was little. And we got through the process of reading the book of Judges. And she goes, what is wrong with these people? You're going to hear this whole cycle over and over and over and over, and you're going to say the exact same thing. What is wrong with these people? I don't know. The same thing wrong with us. The people of Israel again did what was evil on the side of the Lord, so the Lord strengthened their enemy. 
a guy named Eglon, the king of Moab against Israel. Let me paraphrase. He gathered the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and they went and defeated Israel. Verse 14, and the people of Israel served him of Moab 18 years. That's 10 years longer than their last lesson. I'm sure they learned well. Verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, a guy named Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed dude. Oh, all right. <laughs> Anybody see Princess Bride? There's something I have to tell you. I'm not left-handed, right? In the, ah, and he goes, okay. That joke went over better in other services. Anyway, what in the world? Why are we mentioning this guy is left-handed? That's weird. Well, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. What did the tribe of Benjamin do? Nothing. Huh. So he's kind of a guy at this moment that comes out of obscurity. Now, later on, we find out that the tribe of Benjamin was known for being super good warriors, and their favorite weapon was a sling. Y'all remember the whole David and Goliath? Zing, zing, zing. Woo. Let the rock go. Thump. Hits him in the head. He dies. They were really good at it, but they did it with their left hand. Why is that important? That means they're ambidextrous because they would have been raised being right-handed, but they could do it with their left hand. Why would that help? Who cares whether you sling with your left or your right hand? Here's why. In the ancient world, especially in the Middle East, everyone was right-handed. Real quick show of hands. How many of you are left-handed? Please raise your left hand. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, Oh, there's a lot of you. All right. Okay, good. Sometimes God doesn't get it right. I understand. Totally kidding. Totally kidding. Uh, Both my parents are left-handed and all of us kids are right-handed. So I don't know what's going on with the gene pool. Something's something's messed up here. Now, let me say, you're going to be the heroes in the story, all of you left-handed people. Now, let me explain something. Everyone's right-handed. Because in the Middle East and the ancient world, the right hand was the right hand of power, the right hand of authority. Everybody important sat on the right hand. You would not do anything important with your left hand. It would always be. So even if the child had a proclivity to want to do things with their left hand, the parent would train it out of them. They would just say, we're not doing that, we're not doing that, we're not doing that. And so all of them were right-handed. When everyone is right-handed in a culture, you can organize your entire warfare system to work with right-handed people. Does that make sense? You would draw up your formations, you would draw up your shielding, you would draw up everything to work with right-handed attack. But what if somebody was able to be left-handed too? Well, that throws everything off. That's why it's an advantage. But what's intriguing about this guy is he's just marked out by himself as being left-handed. He's not using a sling. So why is it mentioned? We could just leave the story as it is, and I could preach through just saying he's left-handed and he's like some of his other guys in Benjamin. But I think the Lord put it in here on purpose. And I'm going to suggest there's a part in the story that would say there's something deeper. Here's what I mean. The actual description in Hebrew for being left-handed means unable to use your right hand. Lame in your right hand. Why is that important? I think the guy had a handicap. I think the guy couldn't use his right hand. I think he had something wrong with his hand. And so he was never able to use that for warfare. He was left-handed. Is that important? It is. Let's take a look at what happens. It says, the people of Israel sent tribute. That's like paying off the mob. 
They were owed money because the Moabites ran everything. So they would send them money and say, don't beat us up. So one day they send Ehud with the payoff. So the people of Israel sent tribute to him by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, that's 18 inches. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Now I'm going to suggest to you it was underneath his thigh on the inside. Why? Because he's about to go see a king. You think you're not going to get a pat down? You think you're not going to get frisked? Everyone's right-handed. So where are you going to frisk? The left side. He has it hidden underneath his right thigh. No one's ever going to check there because no one is left-handed. But this guy is. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges and a cubit in length, and he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Pause. That's funny. Okay, here's why. Because God put it in there. What in the world is he putting it in there for? Right? Seems so odd. You're going to find out it's a huge part of the story. All right? He was a big dude. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away all his people that helped him carry the tribute. So he's all alone. He sent everybody away. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So the king's like, really? That's awesome. He commanded silence and all of his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. Pause. Who in the world would bring their enemy before them and send all of their bodyguards away? Because the guy's handicapped. When he looks like this, and you know everybody's right-handed, you got nothing to worry about. What's he going to do? You already had him frisked. He's cool. And now what's he going to do with his hand? Nothing. He's a handicapped guy. What could he possibly do? Huh, that's fascinating. Take a look at the next line. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king arose from his seat, which is super important that he stretches out a little bit. Verse 22, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, thrust it into his belly, and the hilt, the handle, also went in along with the blade. That's a pretty heavy shove. And the fat closed over the blade. That's awesome. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Boom! In the Bible. I wonder how Lance is such an immature man does so much study. That's why you want to read something else. Cool. I'll read this. The dung came out. That's awesome. Verse 23. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and he locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Yeah, why? Because the dung came out. And they're like, oh, oh dear, there's something going on in there, right? And they're like, he must be in the throne room playing Candy Crush or Words with Friends. 
And so they waited on the outside. They waited. Look at this. It's great. This is in the Bible. Verse 25. They waited till they were embarrassed. But when they still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key, opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud, meanwhile, escaped while they delayed. And, and I'll paraphrase the rest, he sounded the trumpet. The people of Israel went down with him from Ephraim. He was their leader. He said, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And verse 30, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. That's awesome. You go, that is a weird story. Oh, we're not done. Verse 12. After him was Shamgar, likely a Gentile. The son of Anath who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. He also saved Israel. Hmm. Do you have an ox goad? I had to look it up. What in the world's an ox goad? It's a long animal poker. It's an eight foot long pole with a metal stabby thing on the end so that you can poke the animals and keep them driving the plow. And then on the other side, it has a spade where you shovel off the dirt from the plow. You go, why does he have one of those? Because in his day, the Philistines ran everything and they took all the weapons away from Israel. They had no weapons of warfare, so they couldn't rise up and lead a revolution. So what did he do it with? An animal poker. Killed 600 Philistines with it. Now, I don't know if that's like cumulative. One, ping. Two, ping on Wednesday. Thursday, ping, takes another. I don't know if he's just like stealth ox goat guy who's like, whoa, you know, being ninja-like, right? Or maybe it's just one, like in the movies where they all surround. Yeah, like that would be awesome. It was like, right? And they just kill 600 of them. They all wait in line. That would be cool. Either one's cool. You like Lance? There is there a point? <laughs> Why yes, yes there is. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Let's talk about identity. I'm sorry. What's your weakness that you think that God can't work through? Oh, is it your handicap? Because that's fascinating. God didn't use Ehud despite his handicap. He used his handicap to set people free. Huh, that's weird. But I'm sure that yours is more significant, right? Because you're shy. Well, that's interesting. Moses was shy. He didn't accomplish a lot either. So what is it for you? You're not intelligent enough. God doesn't need your brains. God needs your heart. You don't have the resources. Well, that's interesting because Shamgar didn't have any resources either. So he grabbed an ox goad and got the job done. Why? Because God plus nothing is massive, overwhelming odds. So what is it? Why can't God use you? Oh, it's your past, right? Those bad decisions, your history, your family. Is that why God can't use you? Because you're about to read uh, in a couple weeks a story of... A man whose mom was a prostitute and was rejected by everyone. And he had no history at all. He saved Israel. So what is your, what do you think that God can't use? He can't use you because you're too young. Is that right? You got to wait till you get a little bit older to have some authority. Timothy was pretty young and he was pretty awesome. There were kings of Israel that were under the age of 12 that led well. Samuel was a little boy when God started talking to him. Here's my point to you. 
whatever you think is weakness, God sees as opportunity. And I don't care what the world says to you about it. I don't care if the world says that you can't make a difference. I don't care if the world has judged your weakness as being so significant that now it's a part of your identity. It's not a part of your identity. It's just something about you. So what? Everyone's broken. Everyone has weakness. Everyone has challenge. I would suggest to you that if you are brilliant, if you are powerful, if you are awesome, if you are so impressive to the world, if you have all the smarts and the resources and the money and the fame and the influence, why in the world would God use you? He's not going to get any glory. Everybody but he was so impressed with you. They're not going to look past you. Why? Why would he use you? Why wouldn't he use someone that can let him be seen? Why wouldn't he use someone that has challenges, that is afraid? Why wouldn't he use someone like me that had panic disorder since I was six years old? Why can't he use somebody that stuttered like Pastor Parnell? Why can't he use people that have a handicap or a struggle or a deformity? I don't know what you think is holding God back, but it's not holding God back. It's holding you back. God doesn't need us to bring much to the table. Hey, how many loaves and fish do you have? Well, I don't know. This kid has a lunch here. There's like five loaves, two fish. Okay, I'll feed thousands. Hey, Moses, what do you got in your hand? Well, I got a stick. All right, we'll part the Red Sea with it. Over and over and over, God does extraordinary with very little. He said it to Paul. My strength is made significant in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. We're good. You don't need to be amazing to do things with the Lord. You just need to be willing. He's got everything else in his trunk, right? So I just want to encourage you. If God wants to set you free, what you have been told by the enemy is impossible, he can raise up deliverance. I am here to tell you that you may be the deliverer for someone else. And you just aren't even seeing it yet. Because there's an issue that keeps popping up in your mind, popping up in your mind, popping up in your mind. Why is it bugging you so much? Because it's bugging God and you need to do something with it. I'm not telling you you need to be a solo deliverer. I'd rather have you on a team and work through community. But if none will go with you, still I will follow where Jesus leads. Amen? Can we have the prayer team come on up here as we close out? We're going to pray that these folks are anointed, that God would move through them to bring you breakthrough, that he would move through them to ignite that fire and an anointing for you to go do what God has built you to do. Maybe if you're afraid or you're questioning or you're worried or you lack confidence, I want you to come forward and get prayer because they can say, listen, I don't have all the answers, but I know my God who does. And they pray a blessing over you. That's all we need. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. You are a good and righteous and wonderfully loving Father. You're not like anyone here. You're altogether different and better.
And so, God, we trust you that when you look down at us, you see the potential of what it means to be jars of clay filled with the power of God. That you see a bunch of individuals walking around either getting messed with by the enemy or not setting others free and you're not okay with it. Lord, you have built us for much more. What the world has told us has made us insignificant and you have said we are significant because of you. Therefore, Father, we will not listen to them any longer. We will listen only to your voice. And we say, yes, God. Yes, what do you want to do? Yes, our identity will cry out to you. We know you're the answer. So, Lord, raise us up. Make us the mighty men and women, even when we're scared to go outside. Lord, rise us up, whether we are young or whether we are in our golden years. Lord, you got power for us. You have strength for us. You have more miracles for us. So, God, stir our hearts and we will follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week.